0: Hi, my name is Hans Klevers. I'm a scientist from the Netherlands. Uh, I'm giving three lectures for iBiology. This is the third one. And this one I will describe how we are employing organoid technology, starting from adult tissues, not from iPS cells, for disease modeling, and ultimately for personalized medicine. And the first example I will give you is cystic fibrosis, which is currently the best developed. To summarize what I've said in the previous two lectures is it is possible to exploit the repair capacity of tissues by taking a small sample from that tissue. could be a mouse, could be a human, healthy or a diseased human, diseased tissue. Put it in culture, in 3D, in a defined growth factor cocktail that differs subtly from tissue to tissue, to be optimal. Um, And then you have these cells growing. I've shown in a previous talk that you can use these cells... Uh, to repair tissues. You can actually transplant them. Uh, so far, this has been done in mice. And uh, my, my colleague in Japan, my collaborator, Mamoru Watanabe, is gearing up to do uh, the first in-man trial for gut organoids in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, we realize this is one application of the technology, but a much more rapid application would be the use of these organoids for personalized medicine and for disease modeling outside the uh, individual from which you got the tissue. As you can see here, it is possible with the adult stem cell-based organoid technology to grow a large number of different tissues. Of note, uh, these are usually the epithelial elements of those tissues. Uh, So, they are the sources of carcinomas. They're also the business ends of many... many uh, organs, like the lungs or the pancreas or the liver or the gut. Uh, But these organoids will not have nerves. They will not have blood vessels. They will not have immune cells. They will not have the microbiome, unless you add them to a growing organoid. What is known now and observed by many labs is that if you do so, the additional components will find the right location and will build more complicated structures They are starting looking more and more like the real organ. But again, our version of organoid technology produces the epithelial part of of organs. Cystic fibrosis is a disease very common, the most common hereditary disease in Caucasians. It affects uh, a single gene that encodes a chloride channel. And that chloride channel's function is very important to keep mucus layers moist and to keep mucus moving through gut or liver, or... for cystic fibrosis, very important for the lung. If you lack the channel, uh, you cannot transport water uh, to the mucus layers. The mucus gets very sticky. You see that happening here. Bacteria get trapped in this mucus. They will proliferate. You get chronic inflammation. And cystic fibrosis patients get chronic problems, uh, deteriorating organ function, particularly in the lung. And nowadays, uh, without treatment, um, a patient is not expected to live beyond 35 to 40 years. Vertex, uh, a company in the US, has come up with an incredible molecule or a set of molecules that correct the, the, the function of this gene and they work in a very unexpected way. What they do so that so typically CF patients can produce the protein, but the protein has a mutant amino acid or it lacks fun amino acid. As a consequence, it doesn't fold correctly and then it gets degraded inside the cell. Or if it does fold to some extent, but gets to the surface, it doesn't gate properly. And then again, it doesn't function the way it should, and the the patient is in trouble. Now, what Vertex has developed is a set of currently two molecules that can correct either the folding or the gating of a mutant protein. And as you can understand, this will be a very mutation-specific drug. Because if your problem is here in the channel, and the drug acts here, it would not correct the problem here. It will only correct problems at the site where it binds. So, what Vertex did is they focused on the largest group of uh, cystic fibrosis patients. You can see here the gene. There's a large number of different mutations. But there is... about half of the patients worldwide uh, carry the same mutation, a deletion at position uh, 508, phenylalanine. Um, this... It leads to misfolding and gating problems in the protein. And you see this in the green area here. These are all the patients with that particular problem. So, in principle, the Vertex drug will cure these people, but will not help all these other patients that have rare mutations. So, why is it that CF is so uh, so common? And it's generally believed this has to do with the fact that in medieval times, particularly in Europe, cholera was was occasionally epidemic. The toxin that's produced by the cholera bacterium uh, acts directly on the cystic fibrosis channel. It opens it up. And if you happen to be a normal individual with normal CFTR channels, and you have this bacterium in your gut, you produce a massive amount of diarrhea. The channel opens. Liquid goes out massively. It's not dosed in any way. And a patient will produce up to 20 liters of diarrhea, will dehydrate, and will die very rapidly. If you happen to be a carrier, or if you happen to be... Even better, in this situation, a CF patient. You don't produce this massive amount of diarrhea. You produce much less as a carrier and probably no diarrhea as a CF patient. And you will survive. And for that reason, mutations in this gene have been accumulating uh, in, uh, in recent centuries in Europe. And it's and apparently uh, most common in Caucasians, Europe, and, and in the U.S. Um, these mutations have occurred many, many times. And that's why there are so many different ones. You have to realize some of these mutations are unique to a single family or a small village or a small group of people that have then scattered out around the world. So, first of all, business-wise, it is very difficult to find a, a commercial plan that would allow you to develop a drug for that particular group, because there's so few patients. Also, it would be impossible to ever collect enough patients to do a statistically relevant trial on these patients, you show that it works. So, essentially, these people were left with no treatment. Uh, these people were helped by the Vertex drug that is... Uh, its trade name is, is Orkambi. What we realized... and this was done together with the pediatri- pediatric hospital in Utrecht, uh, Kors van der Rent and Jeff Beekman. Florijn Deckers was the first author on the first paper here. That you can actually mimic the mini-diarrhea that's by, caused by cholera toxin in mini guts. On the left here, you see the mini-guts of a normal individual, stained in green. The movies run over one hour. They're looping. Uh, we add cholera toxin, or we add a chemical compound called foscolin with the same effect. What happens is this immediately opens the channel, and the mini-gut will swell, because now water is pumped into the lumen of the mini-gut, as if you're producing cholera diarrhea. There's no exit to these mini-guts, so they have to swell. And you can see this. They swell about two to threefold over about an hour. In the middle here, you see the mini-guts. And this, these are, I should stress, maybe uh, grown from a rectal biopsy. So, this is painless. Little kids really don't care very much about a rectal biopsy. It takes about a week, two weeks, to grow them up, to have enough for this assay. This is what turns out to be a CF patient with a delta-508 homozygous mutation. So, a patient that is eligible for a combi. Um, You can see that they've grown very well. There's enough of these mini-guts. But they almost have no lumen. And when we add force When we open the channel, the way cholera toxin would do this, essentially nothing happens. This is why this patient would survive a cholera infection, but also the reason why this patient has cystic fibrosis and all the problems in... uh, in this case, his organs. If we now take mini-guts from this patient, we pre-incubate them with the Orkambi drug... We now all of a sudden realize that we can restore uh, functionally CFTR channel function. As you can see, the swelling here over about an hour is the same as what you would see in a healthy control. So these are cystic fibrosis, mini gut organoids treated with Occambi. And this is the sign that very likely for this patient, Occambi will work. Now, based on this assay, um, Kors van der End, uh, the treating physician, professor in Utrecht, I was talking to Fabian. Fabian was very sick at the time. Fabian is a CF patient, but he has an unusual mutation that so far has only been seen in his family. Originally, we knew about him and an aunt. That turns out to be a, a third family member, I believe. The mutation was um, never seen anywhere else in the world, but it was pretty close to where the Delta 508 mutation was located. So, it was assumed that possibly he could respond to this drug. The problem is the drug at that time was not registered. Also, it was a very expensive drug. Uh, insurance companies would not just give this drug to us. Uh, you also have to treat the patient for about a year to decide if it, that it doesn't work. And there's nothing else. So, patients would like to have this drug, because it's their only hope for, uh, for a cure, at least, or for some help. So, uh, Florijn Dekkers made uh, mini-guts from, uh, from a biopsy from Fabian tested Kalydeco, which is essentially one of the two components, and he, tr- he responded dramatically well uh, to, the tre- to the treatment of his organoids uh, to Kalydeco. So, so, we used, essentially, his guys as an avatar of Fabian. This was then enough reason for the hospital to say, okay, we'll make the drug available. Within a matter of a week, it was clear that he responded dramatically well um, as I said, he was very sick. Um, but after this, he's actually now back on the sports field. He plays field hockey. He's a very good field hockey player. And it looks like he is now cured of his disease. He would never have gotten this drug if the organoid test would have not existed. Now, based on his case, so the the Wereld Draai Door is the most popular Dutch talk show. He told his story here uh, with Kars you uh, about what happened. Uh, this then made the Ministry of, of uh, Health in Holland decide that uh, Orkambi should be registered in Holland, these these Vertex drugs. Um, And now the registration of Orkambi says it can be given to every Delta-508 mutant, the common mutation, but it can also be given and reimbursed to every patient with these unusual mutations with a positive organoid test. So, this is the first time we think that organoid technology has really entered regular uh, healthcare. Uh, This is Holland. Uh, We're currently looking at... uh, to build a large biobank of all the CF patients... all the rare CF patients in the entirety of Europe. In Holland, we have 1,500 patients. Our biobank currently holds about 700 to 800. And we hope to get all of them. And we'll expand this in, in Holland. And this can actually be done in a simple... in a single uh, laboratory center where the where the organoids are also stored. So, that is one example of, of how organoids can be used as... in a personalized medicine setting, a much Larger clinical field, but also research fields, would be cancer. And I'll give you some examples of how we have developed organoid technology to get insight into cancer processes, but eventually to also maybe design assays that are very similar to the CF assay that would allow us to decide whether a drug will or will not work for a given patient. So, one thing we've been... uh, a very active reason, now there's multiple other labs in the world that do this, is to build large biobanks, realizing that that cancer... although it can be all colon cancer, that every case is essentially unique. This is actually in Dutch. Gezond means healthy. Ziek means sick. So, what you saw is we can grow the healthy tissue of a cancer patient, but we can also grow the tumor tissue from the same patient grow them side by side. And you can see here a number of carcinomas for which we have built large biobanks, in some cases of hundreds of... of... of patients. We can sequence uh, DNA, RNA. Um, that could be done directly on the tumor. But we can also functionally test, like we did for CF, or like you would do for bacterium, with antibiotic testing. We can test resistance or sensitivity to a large set of... Um, clinically used uh, cancer drugs and also combinations of cancer drugs. This works very well, uh, at least the testing. Uh, We are currently embarking... or have embarked on trials where we cannot instruct the oncology... the oncologist to change treatment of patients, but we can actually follow patients in time, see what the treatment was, and actually see if our organoid testing had predicted the outcome. So, did we predict correctly that a drug would be working or would be not working for a patient? You have to realize that, generally, overall, patients that get treated with anti-cancer drugs, about 40% of them will respond to the drug... About 60% will not respond. 100% will develop cost. But more importantly, will develop all the side effects and will, will then experience a delay in treatment with a drug that does help the patient. So, there is a very, very strong incentive to find... You know, when you start treating the patient, find the best drug, not by statistics, not that you are in a group where we know 60% will respond, but you'd like to know 100% that that patient will respond to the drug. Now, we think that the organoid technology holds this promise. Uh, we were scooped, as it happens occasionally in science, uh, about a year ago by a paper by Vlakojiannis et al., in science that showed that this is indeed, indeed the case. You can grow... and this is the, the, the procedure. You can grow organoids, and they followed a number of Phase one two trials, and they showed an extremely high predictive value, up to 90 95% of predicting whether a given tumor will or will not respond to a given combination of drugs. And there's now multiple centers in the world, and, and we are one of them, that are trying to establish this as a more regular test, and possibly, like I just saw for CF, uh, incorporate this in the normal clinical care, that in, in, in cases where an oncologist is not really certain... What should be given? You could actually use organoid testing. Tumoroid, we call them. Tumor organoid testing. To find the best recombination. This is what they look like. Normal tissue. Tumor tissue from one patient. Another one. Normal tissue from the second patient. So, they don't really look very different. Uh, they can be screened very well without going into much detail. Here we have about five or six colon cancer patients. These have an APC mutation. They are... Uh, they will not respond to WIND blockers. This one would... is an, is an RNA-43 mutation. You don't really need to know the details. But this one would be predicted to respond to a WIND inhibitor. In this case, a porcupine inhibitor. And in a blind screen, you can see how well this one patient separates from these other patients. So, we really believe... That there is a lot of evidence now that, that cancer organoids can be used in a predictive fashion in the clinic. We make... Um, In the course of these studies, uh, unusual observations. First one that I will not illustrate with this slide. But we find that almost all cancer drugs are better at killing normal cells than killing the cancer cells of a patient. Um, You would hope that cancer cell drugs would kill cancer cells, but they don't. There are very few that are specific. I have to also realize there are no normal cell lines of normal... that represent real normal cells. And we think that organoid technology now, for the first time, allows drug companies to screen their drugs against healthy cells and cancer cells and possibly improve on the therapeutic window by developing drugs that will be specific to cancer cells rather than be specific for cells that divide or something like that. So, that's the first uh, somewhat unexpected finding. The second was... was... was really counterintuitive. What you saw in this movie, this is a normal human colon organoids, and there were several mitoses that proceeded rapidly and in these normal uh, colon organoids, they always result in two healthy daughter cells. turns out that, that normal cells are much better at dividing and at expanding in organoid culture than cancer cells. Very counterintuitive. But to show you what happens in these cancer cells... Here you see two nuclei... Turns out to be a single cell with two nuclei. This is not normal in the colon. When the chromosomes condense, they're up to 100 chromosomes. You realize this is also not normal. When the cell then tries to segregate these chromosomes, it has a very, very hard time doing so. Here's another cell that originally generates three nuclei, um, tries to resolve in two nuclei. Here, essentially, the cells gave up and they just died. And this is what we typically see. So the normal tissue under these growth conditions grows exponentially and very fast. And the fastest-growing tumors will actually have about that speed. But almost all other tumors will grow slower than their normal counterparts. So, how do we interpret this? What we think uh, is that um, normal tissue is... is... is very well designed to proliferate, but it's also very well controlled. So, it will proliferate as fast as it can to repair a defect or a loss of tissue. But the moment that, actually, the, the cells that are, re- that are... that have died are replaced, the system settles back into a resting state. Um, We can do that in culture. We can take the growth factors out, and the organoids will basically just sit there, and they will not grow. The cancer cells are like zombies. So, they cannot sprint. They are stumbling around. Pieces fall off. But the big difference with a normal organoid is they will never stop. So, eventually, they will will get the patient. Um, And that is their problem. Meanwhile, you can see how how much the damage is that they incur. So, they're pretty lousy proliferators as cells. But in the end, they will kill the patient. This is a practical problem, because if you get a tissue that's partly normal cells and partly cancer cells... For instance, prostate samples always are mixed cancer and normal cells. And you put them in culture. If you don't somehow block the proliferation of the normal cells, they will immediately take over the culture. And after two or three passages, you're essentially studying normal cells. Now, that was not the intention of isolating cells from the tumor. So, for some tissues, we have solved this. And I'll I'll give you examples of that. But particularly for the prostate, we don't know yet how to get it 100% pure, prostate cancer cell sample or get conditions where the normal cells will not survive, but the cancer cells will will grow. A second... um... Application of organoid technology in cancer research is the following. Um, and I think this experiment was done in my lab by Jano Dross, but it was also independently done by Toshisato, who is now... has his own lab in Tokyo. Uh, and both of us realized independently that the mutations you see typically in colon cancer... APC, KRS, mat 4 P53... Uh, they really reflect the growth factor cocktails that we had empirically defined. And to illustrate this, APC is a negative regulator of wind signals. So, we need to provide winds. I'll show you if you take it out of the medium. Normal cells will die. But when cells are APC-mutant, they are predicted to no longer need wind in their growth vector cocktail. KRAS, a very common mutation in colon cancer, is an EGF pathway. So, an oncogenic mutation in KRAS could probably take away the need... Of EGF in the cocktail, Smad4 is a BMP inhibitor. Uh, sorry, is a transcription factor in the BMP pathway. Nogin is a BMP inhibitor. Empirically, we knew it was important. We never knew why. But cancer does the same thing as we do in a culture system. It it gets rid of the BMP signal not by adding noggin, but by mutating the transcription factor that mediates the signals. And then P53 we have added in this experiment, because it's, it's mutant in the, in the overwhelming majority of solid cancers. So, what did we do? And what did Tashi do independently? Here you see human normal colon organoids. If you would transplant these back into a mouse, they would make normal gut epithelium and behave well. If you take wind out, you can see they immediately die. This, is, this happens in a matter of days. There's no viable organoid left here. But if we at the same time target the APC gene with four different guide RNAs with CRISPR. Some are better than others, but we get these large organoids growing in the absence of wind, so they only have EGF and noggin. And when you take one of these and you sequence them, they turn out to be clonal. So, there was a single cell where we hit APC on both alleles, caused two frame shifts. APC is no longer there. The wind pathway is heavily activated, and it no longer needs triggering from the outside. So, they only need EGF, noggin. Second mutation, KRAS. Here, this is an oncogene, so we cannot just delete part of the gene. We have to very specifically mutate a base. We do this, again, with CRISPR. Uh, you can see that happening here. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 lands near the site that we want to mutate, causes a double-strand break. We provide a large 100-base oligonucleotide. This allows the, uh, the cell to correct a break here, but at the same time, it puts in a mutant base... Um, now, we are no longer encoding at position 12 for glycine, but for an aspartic acid, that you see here. Normal colon... Uh, epithelial organoids, be it APC, wild type, or mutant, will die without EGF. But when we have activated KRAS with a mutation, they happily live. They only need noggin. P53 is very easy to, uh, to mutate with CRISPR-Cas9, and you can select the, uh, uh, the mutant cells by adding a small molecule called NUTLIN. NUTLIN interferes with the MDM2-P53 interaction. It'll kill wild-type P53 cells very efficiently, as you can see here. But if we target P53, again, with four different guide RNAs, we uh, get clonal organoids. And as you can see here, they have lost... So now they have three mutations, they're very close to uh, sort of the prototype colon cancer, and they only need noggin in the medium, nothing else, no serum, nothing else. So for noggin uh, removal, when we do that, we kill the organoids, even though they already have three mutations. But when we target SMAD4, which mediates BMP signals, we no longer need noggin, and now we have four mutations in, and now these cells will grow not in water, but in in medium, without any addition of any growth factors of serum. When we now start transplanting all of these different combinations, uh, only the ones with the four mutations here will start creating tumors. So, this is human colon synthetic colon cancer organoids transplanted uh, orthotopically into the colons of mice. Uh, and only when they have four mutations will they grow invasively, and they will metastasize, particularly to the liver. Uh, and our pathologist tells us they really look like the, the real thing, like real human colon cancer. So, this, I think this experiment illustrates two things. First of all, it is quite feasible... and I'll give another example after this... to create uh, very well-defined human cancer models In organoids, uh, you could do all sorts of interesting things with them, but if you want to convince a pathologist that it actually is a tumor cell, you can quite easily transplant them to mice and recreate the morphology of a... of a real tumor. And for this particular experiment, what I found very interesting is the fact that this... this growth factor cocktail that Toshisato had put together totally empirically... Uh, that actually cancers do the exact same thing. They activate WIND. They activate EGF receptor signaling through KRS. They block BMP signaling. And that's exactly what we do in our culture conditions. Emphasizing that cancers exploit the normal mechanisms that stem cells use in in their normal uh, uh, behavior uh, in, in normal tissues. Yeah. And what I should probably also emphasize, when we try to design culture conditions for a new tissue. Like, recently we did ovarian uh, epithelium and ovarian cancer. We look at what we know generally. We need to activate WIND. We need to activate the TARES and kinase receptor. We need to block tg beta But then we look in the cancers of that tissue. What pathways are blocked? What pathways are activated? And that usually is a strong indication that we should really add or remove or block that particular sig- signal, signal on top of the ones that are the basic organoid growth factor conditions. So, um a final story uh, here. Benedetta Artigiani tried to to model uh, cholangiocarcinoma. This is a cancer in the liver of the bile duct, of the cholangiocytes in the bile duct. And particularly... So, these are the uh, the cholangiocyte carcinomas already... Uh, cholangiocyte organoids already discussed them earlier. And particularly focusing on the gene BAP1 that is... Uh, Mutated in a number of different tissues that you see here. It is known to be a tumor suppressor. You need to lose function of both alleles. In the fly, there appear to be a homologue that's called uh, Calypso. And Calypso is very well, know- very well studied and, and is, is, is really accepted to be a member of the polycomb repressor complex that uh, essentially takes ubiquitins of H2A at position lysine 119. There are a large number of papers on how BAP1 causes human cancer. They're, almost every paper has a different mechanism. But none of those papers uh, refers to the role of what we think is the ortholog of this particular gene in flies. Also, the mouse models for BAP1 don't produce the tumors that, uh, that you'd see in, uh, in humans... So, so clearly, the mouse is not a good model to study how BAB1 causes cancer. And Benedetta wanted to explore, you see her last name here and the paper that she recently published, um, wanted to explore organoids to see if she could learn how BAB1 uh, transforms cells. Now, she, she had the jackpot right away. Here you see a cholangicide organoid from a normal human liver. She's done this from multiple donors. Highly polarized, so this is where the lumen is. This is the apical side. This is the basal side. Highly polarized, well-formed junctions. This is a real epithelium. This is the epithelium that lines the bile ducts. The Pep1 organoids are dense, have no lumen, there's almost no junctions, there's no polarity, so they really lose epithelial um, characteristics. And this would be, people would refer to this as EMT. So EMT is often defined by a few markers. This is sort of functionally empty. These cells, you take out a single gene, they lose any aspect that would make them look epithelial. So, bad one somehow, we think, controls epithelial context. And you can see that here as well. ZO1 is a junction marker. sits at the apex of cells. You can see this here on the confocal. Very nicely, the cells are highly polarized. Very close to the luminal junctions, you can see that ZO1 is located. The moment you knock out bad one Essentially, zo-1 is all over the place, and you no longer see any functional junctions formed. So, bep one again, somehow controls the function of of junctions. When we make movies, here you see normal cholangicide organoids growing, thin-walled, highly polarized epithelium. You see, quite dynamic... You just knock out BAB1 and you get these slimy monsters that crawl around and that basically eat up other organoids, fuse, merge. There's no lumen, there's nothing that makes them look epithelial. These really are mesenchymal cells. Yeah, now most of the papers on BAB1 tumor suppressor function claim a role for BAB1 in the cytoplasm. So, in a data expressed BAB1 in these mutant BAB1 organoids in a cytoplasmic version. The green says that the expression works, but you basically see no change in the behavior of these cells. But when she expressed it in the nucleus of these cells, you can see that in a matter of hours... the whole movie runs over 24 hours... she reestablishes a very nicely polarized epithelial structure, implying that bad one functions in the nucleus and not in the cytoplasm to um, to exert this epithelial organization effect. Lots of uh, omics experiments uh, showed that BAP1 indeed is a chromatin modifier. It indeed is the ortholog of the fly. It, it controls the ubiquitination of this histone. Um, and here, for instance, by ATAC sequencing, claudin one is a very crucial gene for epithelial behavior in cells the enhancers and the promoters are totally closed in the mutant, but the moment you re-express, or the moment that you look in a wild-type cell, you see that these these regulatory elements of this gene are fully open, as demonstrated by ATAC sequencing, applying that indeed BAB1 is a regulator of gene expression. And then we look at the genes that are controlled, surprisingly small um, repertoire of genes about 300, and almost all of the genes you can recognize have a role in epithelial characteristics, be it polarity or be it formation of junctions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Bab1 is a chromatin modifier, an epigenetic regulator that has the unique role, at least in liver cells, to tell cells to be epithelial. And if you lose it, you're no longer epithelial. So how does this play out for cancer? If we transplant these cells that look very ugly in culture into a mouse. They do very little. They make a little bit of an adenoma, but then they get stuck. So they are not malignantly transformed. Although in, in, in vitro they look horrible. What's been at the is she actually rapidly mutated four common genes that are often seen in cholangiocarcinoma. p53, Smad4, NF1, p10. These cells have both of these uh, both alleles of each of these genes mutated. They actually look pretty normal as an organoid, and when you transplant them, they make uh, so. These are the organoids, sorry. And when you do the same thing then, but on top you add the Bab1, you again immediately see this strange epithelial-to-mesenchymal transition. No longer a large lumen, no longer any polarity, no longer any junctional function. So as I said, just transplanting Bab1 mutant organoids doesn't give you a tumor. She then transplanted the, the organoids with the four mutations that were wild-type for beb one and the ones that, on top of the four mutations, had this beb one mutation. Again, the ones with the four mutations you would predict to be extremely malignant, having lost these four tumor suppressors. They go in a very benign way, our pathologist calls them an adenoma, definitely not a cholangiocarcinoma. But the moment we now add in this fifth gene, P1, we get this here. We get a large strong reaction. We get an extremely malignantly looking epithelial components here. This is uh, our, path- our pathologist tells us this is a real human cholangiocarcinoma, recreated starting from a normal liver cell by adding five different mutations in and then transplanting into a mouse. Um, So, we think that that this technology uh, can be used as an alternative to genetically engineered mouse modeling, for instance, to rapidly assemble lots of mutations and then make isogenic series of organoids that have different combinations, but all started from the same cell, and then test them either in vitro or test them by transplantation. And with that, I'd like to thank you very much for your attention.